This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. This week saw the ASX listing of another New Zealand company, the Freightways Group. While Freightways will keep its NZX listing, not every New Zealand company is staying loyal to the local exchange, and an increasing number are choosing to list solely in Australia. NBR's Sydney correspondent, Lachlan Cahoon, has been looking into this for Shoeshine and joins me now. Hi, Lachlan. Hi, Will. So how is the ASX looking at New Zealand right now? Well, um, you could say that they were um, looking at it in a fairly predatory way, um, but um, everybody would be denying that. They're all being very polite about it. But the fact is that uh, there are about 65 New Zealand companies who are currently listed on EASX, and around 18 of them have their sole listing here in Australia. Um, last year, the ASX took the step very proactive of appointing Blair Harrison. Uh, he's a Kiwi guy who'd been working for the ASX for many years. He moved back to Auckland um, as head of New Zealand listings to create a sort of a pipeline of uh, companies for the, to list on the ASX. So they, they really look at the um, at New Zealand as a source for health and biotech companies because the ASX in recent times has created its own sort of technology index. Obviously, they're looking to bolster that with, with fresh companies. New Zealand uh, is renowned for in both of those areas, both of those sectors. Um, and of course, some of the biggest New Zealand companies which have um, significant trans-Tasman businesses are always um, welcome on, on the exchange here. So, so it's, um, you know, it's a bit a, a mixed picture. Technology companies um, new listings um, and, and the big trans-Tasman businesses. So does the ASX a competitor or does it see itself as complementary to the NZX? Well, um, when I spoke to Blair Harrison earlier in the week, he uh, his his comment was that it was complementary, but perhaps that's a bit disingenuous. Um, the reality is that the ASX really needs to grow; it wants to grow. Uh, they fended off a few years ago a merger um, approach from this from the Singapore Exchange, saying that it wasn't in the national interest. So the big picture is that the ASX, you know, needs to needs to bulk up. To, to compete sort of uh, globally. I think it's still in the top 10 of the, of the global exchanges, but uh, but there's been a lot of talk over here in Australia about Australia, Australia not realising its potential as a uh, as a global financial centre um, and the New Zealand listings and the expanding trans-Tasman businesses is really very much a part of that. So, so the pitch to the New Zealand companies is we have a pool of capital here, which is uh, about four times larger. We have a tech, tech index, which is getting uh, getting passive and, uh, and active allocations from global fund managers, and there's increased uh, broker coverage coverage. So, 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 you know, you would say that um, for some co companies it would be complementary, but, uh, but others are coming straight to the ASX and seeing that this is the main game. Yeah, and you spoke to some fierce critics of the NZX. What did they have to say? Well, it does seem to get um, get quite a lot of a bad rap sometimes from some quarters. Um, you know, the main comments are that it's too expensive to list. Um, there are not enough listings, uh, and the profits itself are on the uh, NZX as a listed company have been flat. But you know, that's the same as the ASX. You look at, uh, at the comparative um, performance of, uh, of listed stock markets, and they've been very, very underwhelming. The ASX share price and the and profits of the ASX have hardly moved in the last five years. Same as the NZX. So there's that. But uh, nevertheless, it has been a a criticism of the NZX. Um, perhaps one of the fiercest critics that I spoke to is uh, Mike Daniel, who's probably very well known over there in, in New Zealand, who uh, a longtime shareholder of the uh, of the NZX, who uh, described it as uh, a Wellington bureaucracy. Uh, said they're all having a lovely time there in um, in Wellington. Doesn't know what they're doing. Um, 
he points out that um, the, the funds management business that um, that the NZX is di diversified in is is a distraction. Uh, it's making the exchange lazy because it can rely, rely on the fee income from the from the funds management um, and uh, doesn't need the brokerage. So um, he says it's a conflict of effort. It doesn't say it's a conflict of interest. He describes it as a conflict of effort. Um, he says the market's controlled by around five brokers, all of whom are fund managers, and they're predominantly index huggers. And so, you know, his point is it's just not dynamic enough. Um, so the other the other comment is that um, it, there's very little being done to attract small companies to list. Uh, and the people who do want to, um, you know, invest, be active investors are putting their money into, into private markets, um, into um, uh, into private equity, for example. But uh, but see, that's that's not a um, an uncommon phenomenon around the world now. I mean, the, the public markets have been in the doldrums over the last few years everywhere. Uh, I don't think New Zealand is particularly exceptional in that respect. But uh, but Mike Daniels' ultimate um, goal is for some kind of a merger between the ASX and, and the NZX. Okay, so what's the NZX response to all of this? Well, they say that they see the ASX as a, another potential pool of capital for New Zealand companies, but uh, but they make the point that it's easier to get global index inclusion in New Zealand rather than in Australia. Um, they say that um, an advantage for New Zealand companies is access to a debt market, and that's true. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Sydney, and uh, I've done many stories over the years uh, comparing the um, the corporate uh, bond market in New Zealand to our corporate bond market here, and um, your market over there in, um, in, in New Zealand is always held up as being an example of what we should aspire to in terms of um, in terms of corporates ac accessing debt from the retail market, so so th that is an area that, um, that that New Zealand does actually lead Australia in, um, and the NZX also make the point that it's quite risky for New Zealand companies to have their sole listing in in Australia. They gave me some data which showed that uh, of the twelve New Zealand companies which had listed solely on EASX uh, since twenty twenty, only the shares of one of them were in positive territories in that time, and that's uh, Volpara Health Technologies, which has been, as we all know, quite a success story. Oh, interesting. So, uh, in terms of the local participants here in New Zealand, um, there are who, some who aren't as critical of the NZX. What what did they have to yeah. say? Yeah, yeah, no, not everybody. Not everybody was a sort of as full on as, as as Mike Daniel about it. So I did speak to some other participants, and nowhere near as critical. You look, they said it's been a tough period for, for markets everywhere. You know, um, the IPO market globally is um, is down. The, the NZX is is no, no orphan there. There have been macro factors around the world which have discouraged IPOs, and have seen a lot of money, as I previously previously said, going into into private markets. Um, so. So a lot of companies which which may have looked for an IPO um, over the last couple of years have uh, have gone in trade sales. They've gone they've gone th through that route rather than uh, through the public markets. It's a global phenomenon. But um, you know, they, these other people said, "Yeah, look, it's very hard for acknowledged. Um, the ecosystem makes it very difficult for for smaller um, New Zealand companies to, to attract capital." Um, so there's nothing new in that, and it's probably not necessarily a function of uh, what the NZX is doing, but really, um, you know, it's a structural issue with um, the size of the New Zealand economy and the capital pool. So th they saw positives. Um, the retail debt market, for example, I've already mentioned that's one, um, a strong model, and KiwiSaver um, growing, and um, and and um, and funds from KiwiSaver going into into a lot of local companies. So, but the big back macro picture is that um, you know trans Tasman business is is good for New Zealand companies. Some and the Freightways is a great example. Um, they bought uh, Allied Express over here last year, and that's uh, and, and and now they're getting I think about thirty percent of their of their revenues coming from Australia. So, so you know we are in a in an ecosystem, Australia and New Zealand, a, bus a business ecosystem, and, and the two exchanges really uh, do have their own functions, and they they, they can be complementary. But um, you know this has been a tough time for markets. 
And the little comment was that okay, things are probably going to start improving in about in about twenty twenty four when um, when perhaps um, a few few more companies might start to list on the on the NZX and and things might start moving again. Excellent. Well, we appreciate your insights from across the Tasman. Thanks, Lachlan. My pleasure. Well, cheers. Truth co-founder and chief executive Scott Townsend saw a gap in the market for an all-encompassing farming software that made data reporting for farmers more streamlined. Truth is now raising capital to further build out its capability in hope of eventually taking the product overseas. Scott joins me now to talk about his company. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. Scott, why don't you tell me a wee bit about the origins of Trev and what gap in the market you saw? Yeah, so I guess um, farmers are expected to manage a, a really complex farm system and the process of gathering and sharing information can be quite challenging. So um, I experienced this firsthand when overseeing the business performance of a, a 14,000 cow operation and with farms spread across the North Island, um, we needed to keep tabs on things like um, livestock and inventory management and productivity and farm system wastage in order to have you know, accurate numbers to report back to to key farm stakeholders. So um, in that business, yeah, I, I set up a system that sort of created this balance between the time investment required by farmers to manage and, and record information and, and balance that with the reporting demands of, at the time, my board and, and bank and other stakeholders. And um, so it's sort of a, a born out of a real problem and it, it, it organically grew uh, from there as, as more and more people sort of got exposed to the system set up and, and, and I guess, yeah, today Trev's cementing its place and, and, and solving that same challenge for, for other Kiwi farmers. And you're um, about to launch a capital raise with Snowball. Tell me a wee bit about that and what, how much you're hoping to raise and what that will go towards. Yeah, that's right. So um, we're about to raise $2.25 million through uh, Snowball Effect. Um, use of funds for that uh, predominantly to build out um, our organisational structure. So uh, building out human capital and talent and capability in the business. Um, and that comes across, um, uh, that, that, that's been allocated across um, pretty much the whole business. So uh, some business administration um, resource sales and marketing resource, customer success resource, as as well as building out our development team. Um, second part of the funds is around um, uh, accelerating our AI and our integration pipeline. So um, I guess, you know, connected with that, building out a development team. Uh, and thirdly, um, to um, fund the, the completion of a recent acquisition of Cloud Pharma, which is a, um, a, farm, a farm recording app that um, yeah, we acquired earlier this year. That um, acquisition sounds really exciting. Can you tell me a wee bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, uh, Cloud Pharma um, uh, approached us at the back end of 2022. So, um, yeah, a farm recording app um, predominantly used by uh, red meat farmers, sheep and beef farmers. Um, and, um, yeah, opportunity presented itself for um, for us to acquire them, which was, which was a, a really nice marriage between uh, what was needed from the Cloud Pharma business as well as our own plans um, having recently launched a, a sheep, sheep and beef product ourselves um, and, and really um, yeah, this opportunity to um, take some of the, uh, the aspects of, of Cloud Pharma recording and apply to it the true principles around um, helping farmers you know, really glean value out of their data. So I guess moving from a space of putting data into a system that, that digitally records it to, to then extracting real value and start shaping farmers' data as a strategic asset for the business. 
And you started off sort of working with dairy farms and you've moved into sort of beef and lamb. Can you tell me a wee bit about that transition and if there were any challenges transitioning? Yeah, I mean, um, ultimately, uh, the slightly different markets and, and we need to talk to our customers how they um, how, how suits each of each of those segments. But ultimately, it's the same problems, right? It's um, whether you're a dairy farm or, or whatever uh, red meat system that you're running, um, you've got these goals and drivers to be a productive, profitable and sustainable business. So, yes, yeah, some of the terminology uh, changes when you you know you're talking about different inputs and different outputs, but it's all predicated on the same sort of you know um, challenge around that gathering and sharing of information and using that to drive business decisions and and then um, something else that's really important for Trev is um, helping farmers get their data to other platforms. So either getting it to the right people that need to be uh, using that information for for decision making for their role within a business. So that might be a consultant or a landowner or a or a or a shareholder base with directors, or getting it to other platforms like you know um, um, Figured or, or or into your milk or meat processor. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you hope to take this overseas. Is overseas competitive? Do you, do you see a space in the market for Trev? Yeah, we do. Um, so we've done a little bit of due diligence so far. We've got a, a lot more to do before we start um, working through that blueprint. Um, but but we see the same opportunity as what we saw here. Where um, yes, there is um, there are apps available. Um, there are products available to help farmers start. Um, collating information digitally so what we sort of talk about is as recording apps but there's a real absence of this um this this reporting player so helping farmers you know shape their data into the structured architecture that means you can genuinely glean value from it it's not sort of haphazardly um putting data into into a into a cloud um it's going beyond that and AgTech is a big interest going into the elections this year. Is there any policies or sort of government action you would like to see? Yeah, if I, if I think about the things that um, really supported us on our journey, um, uh, access to things, um, tools and funding that um, promoted and encouraged the research and development um, activities of our business. So things like the RDTI, um, uh, scheme as um, was was really beneficial for Trev. Um, more so, um, being able to access that in cash flow uh, sooner. So we'd love to see um, more opportunities to um, to promote and, and accelerate R and D activity like that. Um, and then um, I think the other thing is um, helping open up doors uh, for Kiwi businesses to take you know agri tech products overseas. And I understand there's good resource there so ensuring that that stays in place so that um, businesses like Trev can you know incubate in New Zealand and, and serve that market really well but have some global aspirations and get that offshore. Wonderful well all the best for your capital raise. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz Hensi has worked in the fuel industry for more than 13 years, and she now runs Cora Fuel Cards, a fully independent business of Waitomo Group that aims to give small and mid-level businesses cheaper fuel. She's also got a background in startups in New Zealand and elsewhere. And Liza, before Fuel Cards, there was a stint in vehicle leasing for you. 
and I worked for a company called Fleet Lease, and they were owned by Countrywide Bank. I don't know if you remember Countrywide Bank from back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Got bought by the National Bank of New Zealand, and the National Bank went, mm, car leasing and all that kind of stuff is, isn't our gig, and they sold it on to this company that was part of Ford, and it was a really interesting journey for the poor guy that was going to be the managing director who found out in Singapore on his way to move his entire family to Australasia that um, his job no longer existed and they were amalgamating it under the Hertz brand. And it was just a really interesting time. Anyway, through my time there, I met some people and vehicle leasing was an interesting, was a really interesting kind of financial model. And Australia decided to abolish GST at the beginning of the 2000s. Oh, sorry, introduce GST at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, And so overnight, GST got applied to the sale of motor vehicles, which was quite a big deal for vehicle leasing companies in Australia because they hadn't banked on that happening. So suddenly they had 10% of their profit being sent off in tax, which was a big deal. And um, I was working with our Australian division and one of the ladies I worked with said, you know what, we could give this a go. Why don't we do this? Yeah, sure, that's a good idea. Let's start our own leasing company. So I flew off to Australia and I lived in Melbourne for seven years. And um, we started a motor vehicle leasing company with just the two of us. Wow. Um, thought it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And um, it was a really interesting journey on understanding your risk profile. I was 27 at this stage. And I think my biggest learning I had out of that was you have to understand that a friendship has to transcend a business relationship. <laughs> what you are as friends and how you are as business partners is often quite different. And um, so I did learn quite a lot out of that exercise. We we did really well, actually. We were quite successful, um, almost to the point of being too successful. We needed to get out. We, we, every year we would sit down and we would go, what's our biggest risk? And our biggest risk was getting funding to buy the cars. And um, our third beginning of our third year, we sat down and, yep, sure enough, funding was still our biggest issue. And uh, not two weeks later, our funder rang and said, oh, We've just been audited and you make up 75% of our funding portfolio. We can't fund you anymore. So that was a bit of a moment. Anyway, it it was one of the moments in my life where being a Kiwi overseas was my advantage. We got introduced to a chap who they used to call the godfather of leasing in Australia. He had relationships with GE Capital and he'd sold his business to GE. So he'd done quite nicely for himself. But his wife was a Kiwi. And we went to this meeting with him and his wife opened the door and she says, oh, goodness, haven't heard that accent for a while. Where are you from? I said, oh, look, I am an Aucklander, but please don't hold it against me. I'm actually quite a nice person. <laughs> and she said, that's okay. I lived in Auckland before I moved to Tauranga. And it kind of opened the door for us to have a really different conversation with this guy than we would have if it had been a pure business meeting. And the good news was we managed to get funding. And then about 18 months later, we sold our business. You learned some salient things about mixing friendship with business then. All, all was good in the end, but... There was a very difficult period of time navigating our friendship and our business partnership at that time. And I'm still friends with my business partner. We are still friends. But when we sold our business, I found out that you can't always trust that what a person's telling you is 100% of the story. And I found out some stuff after the sale that was a bit disappointing from a business and a friendship perspective. So lots of personal life learnings on that one. Probably at that point decided I would never, ever run a business with a friend or go into a business partnership ever again because it doesn't meet my personal profile of risk. You went contracting after that. How did Cora come about? I was merrily bumbling along in my contracting world, actually working, ironically, for mobile. 
<laughs> again, um, helping them put new computer systems into their um, petrol stations. And my background is accounting and IT, but probably more heavily skewed to IT than accounting. And um, and the Waitomo group said, oh, we thought we might start this fuel card company. What do you reckon? And I And I said to them, look, I really admire you for wanting to do this, but it's a really crowded market. Like, are you sure that this is what you want to go into? Because mm. there are a lot of people playing in this space. And they went, yeah, but we still think there's a little niche market we can carve out. Wouldn't it be cool if we could offer the staff of the organization a discount? And I went, yeah, I think that's a really great idea. It's just no one's ever had the courage to do uh, consumer credit in that way before. And they said, well, why don't we just give it a go? So anyway, we crunched the numbers and they said, would you come and run it? And it was kind of like, well, gosh, you're putting a lot of faith in me to do this, but if you think I can do it, sure, I'll give it a crack. Um, and look, fuel cards are a long game, and that was one of the things I said to them too, is this isn't a quick win. This is a long game. Um, you, it's effectively a startup that you're going with, but you've got the weight of the Waitomo group behind you because the shareholders are the same shareholders that own the Waitomo group. But we're completely autonomous and fully independent from them. There is no overlap in our businesses at all. So we managed to secure a contract with mobile and a contract with Waitomo to be able to get hold of fuel cards. And so we effectively buy the fuel in bulk as the owner of the account. And then we on sell that to buy signing up customers who get our fuel cards. Okay. Um, and yeah, the, so, we, so it was like, well, how do you go into this crowded market and make Cora stand out and actually make it different? And it's, it sounds like a real hackneyed cliche, but it is a very male dominated industry. And there's one point of difference that my team of people can make that the rest of them don't seem to be able to get a grasp on. And it's actually providing a customer with service that's consistent and honest and it's easy and it's transparent. And that's what we've done is we've provided a really cool level of service to people. We've made it as crystal clear as we can. So there isn't anything that they're getting sort of caught out about. We signed up as financial service providers which is really, I think we are the only fuel company, fuel card company in New Zealand that is a financial service provider because we believe that even though we technically don't wholly fit into that framework, we have a responsibility to show people that actually we're not wanting to lend people money because we think that lending them money is a, is a thing that we can make money from. Yeah. We don't want to lend money to somebody if they can't afford it. That's not what this is about. We do want people to save on fuel. And we do want people to get the benefit of the discount. And if we, if our bulk buying power means that we can pass a discount on that, it's fantastic. But we don't want to put people in a position where we've put them into financial trouble. And so we've been able to structure it that we can get it so that people pay on their payday and get it so that people can do it weekly or fortnightly or monthly, depending on when their payday is. And we can actually restrict the credit which is something that um, I think initially when we started this, that probably wasn't something that everybody thought would become a selling point for us, but actually the fact that we can restrict the credit and give people a bucket of money that they've allocated for that period of time for fuel and manage that on their behalf has actually become probably one of the features that helps to, helps it to sell itself. Um, and so, yeah, we've been going, we've actually been in existence for two and a half years, but we've been fully trading now for just over two um, and we've just clicked over 8,250 customers. Ooh. And we're um, about to have our, we're going to be very, very close to pumping 1 million litres of fuel through Waitomo and Mobile this oh, month. Right. Which, yeah. you know, feels like a nice trajectory to be on. 
It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz beaming in from Christchurch this week. So Hilmari, you're looking at superannuation and you're saying that the current age of 65 is not sustainable long term. Um, hi, Donna. Yes, I do think that if we look at um, superannuation and what we spend on superannuation and over time, um, I don't think we will be able to maintain that as our population gets older. Currently, we have about 800,000 people over 65. By 2050, which is not a long time from now, we are going to have one and a half million people um, that will be able to qualify for superannuation. So what are the options on the table? Raise the super age, a different funding kind of model? Um, yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, Politically, it's been mooted by on both sides about raising um, the age to 67. Um, the other options is to decouple uh, superannuation from inflation, uh, but that will, I don't think, lead to significant um, savings. And the last one is also to make sure that new migrants that move to New Zealand cannot qualify for super for a very, very long time. But that will also have very minor impact on uh, what we do spend on superannuation. So it's a very tough position to be in. What are the current pinch points? You're saying it's already having an effect. Um, Yes, so I do think it's, if you look at our total spending on Social Security and welfare, um, in 2027, which is not a long time from now, it will be equal to what the government spends on health and education. Um, so the majority, just over 50% of superannuation makes up social security and welfare. The other big ones are um, uh, occup- um, so, um, occupation supplements as well as job seeker support. Um, so it will have to be a juggle between what we spend on super and what we spend on other social security and welfare benefits. What is the appetite for raising the age? I don't think there's a, a very big appetite for raising the age. But, John, a very interesting, in New Zealand, 25% of over 65-year-olds are still working, um, which is really, really high. It's one of the highest in the OECD countries. Across the ditch, I think it's around about 12%. So we are already seeing that a significant proportion of over 65-year-olds are still in the workforce. And they'll be in it for longer and longer. Absolutely. As it gets less and less affordable to retire, we will see the next generation staying in the workforce for longer and longer. How are other countries tackling this issue? It's very hard, um, as uh, we know from recent experience in France, uh, where they have tried or they did raise uh, the age for retirement. Um, it's really, really hard and very highly politically contentious. So what you do see is that it's either means tested or that in terms of raising the age over a period between 10 and 20 years. Where could the government make some initial and quite significant headway fast? with this? It's very hard. I think one of the first things we have to do is to make sure that enough young people still come into the country 
So when we look at migration, um, that we have a, enough young people coming to settle, to work, to live here long term, to make sure that we have that tax base to be able to support um, social security and welfare benefits, that would definitely be the first short-term focus. Hmm. And a million people on super age by 2027, that's not far away at all. Yes. Um, a million people. So it will have to, and I do think, you know, we are moving into um, some tough times over the next 10 years. And I think um, whoever is in government next uh, will have to make some tough decisions on how we allocate social security and welfare payments. Hill Murray Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. There's a lot going on in Hollywood currently with what seems like the entire film industry on strike owing to a dispute about revenue sharing. Would our own film industry be allowed to go out on strike the same way? With me to help answer that question is Daniel Erickson, a partner and employment law specialist at Tomkins Wake. Daniel, hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, no problem. <laughs> now, you've been perhaps like all of us looking at what's going on in Hollywood. Yeah. What's going on there? Well, there's a bit of strike action, obviously. I, I think it, it sort of, from what I can understand, it started with the writers and it's moved on to some of the actors who've, you know, gone out in sympathy, as they say, and 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 they've gone on strike as well. So, um, obviously, they're um, trying to secure uh, better terms and conditions. Um, hence the strike action, which is, you know, often used as leverage in these situations. Yes, um, it's gone on for quite a long time now, and it's it's a mm. wonder that it's still going. But I kind of reflected on the fact that maybe in New Zealand we our industry would not be allowed to do that. What's the situation with our industry? Yeah, well, the, this dates back to the to the last national government, and and around the time that um, you know Lord of the Rings was being filmed here, and 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 Hobbit movies, and so forth. But there, there was a change made to. Uh, our, our laws around classification for people in the screen industry, and there's now almost a um, a, a, a situation where by default they are contractors, um, and that was um, that's been the case for quite a while. So you know people associated with making films, televisions, you know things, even things like music videos, things like that, uh, uh, as I say, by default uh, treated to be contractors. Um, and that means that you know they they don't have certain rights. So they don't, for example, have minimum holidays entitlements, minimum wage entitlements, and so forth. So they, um, yeah, they're they're in a different category. If they want to be treated as employees, they have to uh, have a have an employment agreement specifically that says they are an employee. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's a, it's a different way of how the default situation is treated. Just roughly, and I know it's a complex issue, but how did they manage to get this special carve out? Well, uh, from memory at the time, there was a fair bit of media coverage around this, and there were there were sort of various emails to and from uh, film executives and the government, and you know there was some criticism that it was, um, it was special treatment essentially being being afforded to people that were coming to New Zealand to to spend a fair amount of money uh, making films and television programs. So yeah, the the behind the scenes, it appears there was a fair bit of lobbying going on. Um, but you know, the flip side of that is it was probably viewed as encouragement for 
these overseas uh, production companies to come to New Zealand and, and you know, some of these productions obviously did pump a fair bit of money into the economy as well um, in terms of the, the work being done, uh, but also the, the publicity from having uh, these, these popular films shot overseas. I understand that in the New Zealand studio system, because so many of our productions are American, they've also sort of ground to a halt in some circumstances or we've got less content coming through and so forth. If, if people on a New Zealand film set have a problem mm. and, and a quorum of them have a problem, what can mm. they do to, to improve their working conditions? Yeah, well, there was there was legislation passed last year, the Screen Workers legislation, and, and this essentially provides that even though they are by default contractors, they can um, band together for, through the various guilds, you know, the Actors Guild, for example, they can band together and bargain for um, base, you know, a base level of terms and conditions. So it's kind of like a, a collective bargaining situation that we have for employees. Yeah, they can um, form a group and 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 bargain together. Um, the difference is, and I guess this is where the, the main contrast comes in with the situation in the states, is that the, the legislation specifically specifically says they can't take industrial action, so they can't go out on strike in support of uh, a claim for better terms and conditions. Which I you know goes back to your initial question: is would we see it here? And the short answer is no, because. Um, because the the the, um, the legislative framework around it is completely different, right? And of course, we have had a bit more clarity around the contractor versus employer situation mm -hmm. of late. Yet we're approaching what is looking more likely to be a change of government. Can you mm. just run us through briefly how that's going to change the contractor versus employer? employees sorry um yeah well i think the extreme example is acts policy and that they're proposing to essentially remove section six uh, of the employment relations act and that, that's the section that enables uh, a party you know if they if they are classified as a contractor they've got the ability to go behind that label and essentially claim they're an employee um, which in turns would open up holidays act benefits you know the ability to pursue a personal grievance if you feel you've been unjustifiably terminated or dismissed. Um, so that's, I guess that's that's the extreme example. And whether or not that happens, you know, who, who knows? I guess it may ultimately depend if there is a change in government, how much leverage can the ACT Party exert and, and how important is this policy to them? Mm. I think, you know, for, for it, it's potentially going too far because that would still leave open, you know, situations. And it and it does happen. We've seen examples in the courts where people are mislabeled and there is a real uh, potential for that to be misused and actually deprive people of um, of the, the remedies that they can seek through a personal grievance. You know, people are vulnerable, people are taken advantage of. So, look, there, there may well be change in the space. Whether we have to go that far, I don't, I, personally, I don't believe that's the answer. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there is some change in this. Of course, we've had the Uber cases as well, yes. which is an example where the, the the law may not quite be keeping up with the, the, the technology that's available on the market and the different scenarios that, that are in play there. So, yeah, look, what you're right, there, there have been cases, the Uber cases, the Glory of Our cases, for example, where there has been increasing clarity, but I think it's still to say it's in a, in a state of flux. Do you think if ACT 
get into um, the government governing arrangement and if they have power and if they do what you've just alluded to there, mm. would that change anything about the Uber case? Uh, I think, it, I mean, it would certainly make it more difficult, if not impossible, for an Uber driver to be declared to be an employee. And it, it would depend ultimately where the legislation ended up. But I mean, if you, uh, as far as I can ascertain from the ACT Party proposal, the, the label would basically become definitive. So there wouldn't be that power for an individual such as an Uber driver uh, to claim I'm in fact an employee. They would be stuck with the label that they've originally agreed to. Now, of course, some would say that's that's contractual certainty. And if you agree to a label, you should be stuck with it. And and look, in many cases, that's a valid argument. Um, but at the same time, there are situations, and it's not hard to foresee it, where, where it's open to potential abuse, where you've got people that are um, desperate for work, any kind of work, and they will, you know, they may be um, recent immigrants without such a good grasp of English, and they don't quite understand the nature of the arrangements are entering into. Regardless of any of that, it's not going to happen to our film industry workers. That's what you say. I, I'm not aware of there any propo any proposals for change around that. Um, and you know, it, it, there, as I say, there's this situation now where the contractors can band together and and um, look to bargain collectively. But but according to the MB website, there's none of that currently in train because, you know, they have dashboards of these various things. And, you know, I checked that yesterday um, and looks like there's nothing in the pipeline. But that may be because, as you've said, the activity has slowed down um, of recent times. So perhaps there just isn't the demand for it. Who knows? But, um, yeah, you're quite right. I, I can't see that particular uh, industry changing anytime soon. Daniel, thanks so much for talking to MBR. No worries. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.